0: It is good to be back with you on this Lord's Day again, and uh, I've missed being up here with you. Uh, Mark gave me the month of April off, at least being up here. The rest of the pastorate down there kept right on going, Uh, but it's always good to be here. I enjoy this, and I know in the future as as our uh, involvement in Mark's ordination is over and we won't have to come up here quite as much, I'm going to miss it. I'm probably just going to come up for the ice cream you know, because it's a good ice cream place up here. So, well, listen. We have been studying in our church in James uh, for the last few months, and we've been looking at James four specifically uh, for the last four weeks. And so, we're back there again today. And I'd like you to open your Bibles with me to James chapter four, and we're going to consider for today just a first part of verse seven through ten. And what I want to talk about today is how to stop being a friend of the world, how to stop being a friend of the world. James chapter four, verse seven, and we'll read down through verse 10. The word of God says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. On April 3rd, 1965, a legendary radio host issued a warning to America. And the warning he delivered was trying to tell us how we should think about what the devil desired to do to destroy America. And he said, if I was the devil, this is what I would do. In that broadcast, he said these words, and I quote, if I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I would want to engulf the whole world in darkness. And I'd have a third of the real estate and four-fifths of the population, but I wouldn't be happy until I seized "'the ripest apple on the tree, thee.' "'So I'd set about however necessary to take over the United States. "'I'd subvert the churches first. "'I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. "'Then as the wisdom of the serpent, I would whisper to you "'as he whispered to Eve, do as you please. "'To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is only a myth.' I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what is bad is good and what is good is square. And the old I would teach to pray after me, our father, which art in heaven, who art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors and how to make lurid literature exciting So that everything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I would threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I would sell alcohol to the ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I would tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I would soon have the families at war with themselves. I would have churches at war with themselves. I would have nations at war with themselves until each of them were consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect the discipline of emotions and just let them run wild. Until until before you knew it, you'd have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors in every schoolhouse. Within a decade, I'd have the prisons overflowing. I would have judges promoting pornography. Soon, I would evict God from the courthouse, then the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I would make the symbols of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil i take from those who have and give to those who want until I killed the incentive to be ambitious. And what do you bet I could get the whole states to promote gambling as a way of getting rich? I would caution against extremes of hard work and patriotism and moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned and that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way it should be, And thus, I would undress you in public. I would lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I just would keep right on doing what he's doing. That was written by Paul Harvey, 1965. I'm not sure that many of you remember that. He was no doubt a prophet for our day. We are seeing exactly what he talked about, and we are seeing the devil destroy our country and our families and our culture. And there's no doubt that our country is literally in a battle for her very life. There are evil forces that are being orchestrated right now against this country and the families of this country that cannot be explained in any other form or fashion than demonic and satanic. And apart from the divine intervention and the cessation of God's already ongoing judgment, the U.S. of A. is headed for complete annihilation. Our rejection of the authority of God and our unwillingness to submit to him as a nation and as a culture has sealed our fate. As so many pagan nations have gone, so we are going now to utter and complete ruin. But even now, large, the large majority of the churches in America are dead or dying. Preachers are unskilled in the word of God and are unwilling to preach the whole counsel of God. In 2021, Lifeway Research based some data off interviewing three dozen denominations. Out of that, it found that 4,500 churches had closed. But also... 3,000 churches were started, so a net loss of 1,500 churches in one year. The attendance of the churches had dropped from 137 on average attendance to 65 people in just the past two decades. Religious membership was stable throughout the 20th century until 2000 to 2020. In in 2000, rather, it was 70% Now church membership is down to 47% in 2020. They even tell us that some pastors receive more information than they've ever wanted on conspiracy theories among their congregants. 49% report that. The reason why we have such a decline in America and in the churches is because the people themselves are in decline. In other words, they are affected by and consumed with and lured away by the world system and the evil of this world system that is ran by the devil himself. In fact, in 1 John five nineteen, it says this, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one. That is translated in the legacy standard Bible this way that the whole world is in the power of the evil one. Looking back at the old authorized King James, it says that the whole world lieth in wickedness. All of those really could be understood as accurate translations. It's just depending on how you translate the dative in the text. Because the word poneros that is used there for evil one can be also understood as wickedness. There is the preposition there, the word in, and it could be understood that the whole world does lie, literally, in the lap of wickedness. However, most translators translate it like it is translated in Matthew six thirteen, where the same word is used whenever we are taught to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Whether it's the wickedness of the evil one or the evil one himself, either one is going to give you evil and wickedness, either one. And the point is that the world system lies, that's the Greek word kaimai, it means to be established for a continuing purpose or to exist for. In other words, the world system is existing for and continuing in a state of purpose of the wickedness of the evil one. The devil has the influence in the world, does he not? He has created over the years major stumbling blocks that have entrapped millions outside the church and inside the church. The moral and spiritual decline of America and the church is because of the moral and spiritual decline of the people in the church. The institutions don't fail by themselves. They don't grow corrupt on their own. And what I mean by that is the institutions of family and church and Government, they fail and grow corrupt because the people inside of them fail and grow corrupt. The values, the commitments, the morals, the spiritual submission to God that once was a non-negotiable is now on the chopping block. More and more are willing to trade these commitments for worldly success or worldly pleasure or worldly popularity. Less and less Christians are willing to be persecuted for naming the name of Christ, but more are willing to give in to the compromise of the culture. The key strategic means with which the devil uses to seduce the church is the temptation with cultural compromise to do what the world does, to think like the world thinks, to act like the world acts. Author Robert Jones, writing about this very topic, challenging what is facing conservative Christians, said this, and I quote, What's at stake isn't just the outcome of political debates. Conservative religious groups' very future hinges on how willing they are to navigate from the margins toward the new mainstream. To move away from the strong conservative values, he says, would spark a profound identity crisis and risk losing the support of their current aging support base. But refusing to reevaluate this, on the other hand, may relegate conservative religious groups into cultural irrelevancy and continue decline as more and more young people are leaving the church. Now, what he's saying is that the strategy to preserve The conservative Christian groups is for you and I to migrate from the extremes to the mainstream. What that means is compromise. That means don't continue to support and believe what the Bible says. That means be willing to move away from what they would call the extremes, which is basically what God says in his word. They believe that the way you preserve any conservative religious community is to become more like the culture, more like the world. We're seeing that right now. More and more churches and more Christians are capitulating on these very issues. Compromise with the world. Listen to this carefully. Compromise with the world, in any conservative community, in any Bible-believing community, will destroy it. We should have known this because we've learned from history what happens when liberalism comes into the churches. We've looked at what happened to the churches years ago who embraced liberal ideology and rejected the authority of scripture and demeaned the miraculous of the Bible and chose to say that men wrote it instead of God only. And as Christian men and women who believe the word of God and believe that it should be obeyed to compromise with the world is to make yourself a friend of the world and also an enemy of God, an enemy of God that's what we have been looking at for the last few weeks in verse 4 of James 4 which really is the theme of the whole passage because this is what James is addressing he's telling us here do not do you not know this is James 4 4 do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God and whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God now some have said that this passage is not addressed to believers, because nowhere else in the Bible does it ever tell us that a believer is an enemy of God. Well, I would argue differently, and the reason why is because I would argue that this passage says that you can be an enemy of God. So at least there's one. And the reason why I say that is this is that all the characteristics here in the text clearly reflect someone who is a believer. And also, the way James even uses the words here, he's not talking about your historic position as an enemy of God because you're born in Adam in rebellion against God. That's the classic Romans thought, no doubt, in Romans 5. But here you'll notice in verse 4, he says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility or enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be, or boulamize the Greek word, it means determines. It's a, a, a will of decree, a determined will. In other words, whoever therefore determines to be a friend of the world makes, is the word, to set yourself up. You set yourself up to be an enemy of God. In other words, you can put yourself in a position to be a friend of the world, therefore therefore, putting yourself in a position to be an enemy of God where God works against you. He opposes you. Whereas in verse 4 it says that this friendship with the world is hostility to God. You are being hostile to God. James here in the text is clearly writing to the believers who understand this because they are being bent toward the world. They're beginning to follow after the world. And he begins by addressing them and showing them that you are classic examples of those that are friends with the world. And how he does that is by amplifying the characteristics of those who are friends of the world In James 4.1, he says, where do wars and fights come from, from among you? Do they not come from the desires for pleasure that war in your members? These words that he chooses to use here are reflective of a believer. A believer is the only one who has war in his members. An unbeliever does not have that. But what he's talking about here is there are quarrels and fights and arguments among you Because you desire what you want. That's the word for pleasure. We get the word hedonism from it. In other words, it's whatever makes you feel good, whatever satisfies what you want, is what you go after. And you do it even to the expense of other believers. You war, you fight, you quarrel. As he says in the text, you lust and you do not have. You murder, you covet, you cannot obtain. Which murder could refer to to just hatred alone you fight and you war. So one of the first characteristics of this person who's a friend of the world is that he desires whatever he wants at the expense of however it affects anybody else. His pleasure is number one. Number two, the other characteristic is they don't pray correctly because they have been influenced by the world's desire for pleasure. And this is a problem. This is a problem even in the evangelical community where we begin to pray for things that are just necessarily reflective of our own desire for pleasure. In other words, we pray for things that we want. We pray for things that we think will make us more comfortable. We pray for things that will help us when, in fact, in many cases that may not necessarily be the case. Did you know that sometimes people don't even understand this? Whenever you have a different approach to counseling, which is called biblical counseling. That sometimes one of the things you say to a person who's in a serious situation is, first of all, we need to recognize that God may not want you out of this. That doesn't settle well with most people because the first thing we think of is, we want out. We've got a mess here. It may be a health problem, it may be a marriage problem, it may be a relationship problem, but sometimes God wants you there for sanctification purposes. So just because we're praying, Lord, get us out, that may be something consumed upon our own pleasure rather than is this the will of God or how am I handling this or how has God purified me or how will he purify me through this process? That's utterly foreign to the world system of counseling. But in their prayer life, it even says this in verse two, you do not have because you do not ask. And some believe the reason why they weren't asking is because they already knew that what they were asking for is not something God would give anyway. Not that they were prayerless. But then he goes on and amplifies that in verse 3 you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss, so that you may spend it, exhaust it on your pleasures. In other words, you're all about making you number one. You're all about making sure you are pleased, that you have all that you need. And that may not be what God's pleasure is for you. And then number three. Another characteristic he points out here that shows that they are friends of the world is the first words there in verse 4. He calls them in the New King James adulterers and adulteresses. I think it's the New American Standard and other translations only have the word adulteresses or adulterers. And the point is, is that these are unfaithful. Now, listen, you cannot be unfaithful to a marriage partner unless you're married to a marriage partner. Okay. And so my point is here, what he's talking about is you are married to Christ. You are the bride of Christ and you have gone after another lover and the other lover is the world. You have shown your affections and your desires for and your willingness to spend time with and your willingness to listen to the world, the other lover in your life. And he calls them spiritual adulterers. You're friends with the world. Therefore, obviously, you are committing spiritual adultery on God. And so they were showing their affection and their love for the world and not for God alone. And the last characteristic that shows us that these were friends of the world is verse verse six it says, that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble." This is really a reflection of the whole thing, a summation of it all, because they were prideful, self-sufficient, and self-centered. They believed that they could do whatever they wanted, and they believed that the way they wanted it was the best way for them. And they were consumed by by the ideology of hedonism, which our world is. But as we come to the text that we're looking at, what we're finding now is that James turns, he turns from the characterization and really the confrontation of the readers that he's writing to about their friendship with the world. And now he calls them to repentance. He calls them to repentance. So James tells them basically to reject the call and the lure of the world to return to their faithfulness to God alone, to leave the other lover and to come back to Christ, to give your heart, soul, mind, and strength to God and God alone. This is why it reads this way. If you'll notice again, verse 6, he says that God does resist the proud. That is, he resists the self-centered hedonist who's after whatever he can get from this life. And since God does resist that person, verse seven, therefore submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then he talks about cleansing your hands, purifying your hearts, lamenting, mourning and weeping, which are all indicative of true biblical repentance true biblical repentance now this is not a text to isolate as so many often do in fact some will isolate this text and not understand it because they'll think that well obviously God only wants us to go around with a sad look on our face all the time and we should all be mourning and weeping and you know glorifying the fact that we're all worms and we're worthless and useless and so forth But you have to understand this text about mourning and weeping and letting your joy that even God tells us and commands us to be full of joy, right? He does. I mean, Philippians, right? Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Well, how are we going to rejoice? And again, I say rejoice if here it tells us to turn our rejoicing in the morning and weeping. Which is it? Well, it's not either or, it's both and. And the point is, is that this is in a context and the context is of a group of people who have had their affections drawn away from Christ to the world. He calls on them to repent, to mourn, to weep over their sin of unfaithfulness to God. That's what he's talking about. It's not a text to be isolated. It's a text to understand in the context of your attraction to the world. And if you are attracted to the world, you are being seduced by the doctrines of demons you and I need to stop listening to the world stop listening to the sirens of the world that are constant and submit to God submit to his word and his lordship resist the devil now and forever become biblically saturated word saturated and prayer saturated so in verse 7 he says therefore which we all know Helps us to understand that he's building now on what he just previously said. He's diagnosed their problem. He's shown the reality of the fact that they have been drawn into their affection for the world by the way they're acting, by the way they're praying, by the way they are. And so he calls on them now to submit to God, which is an overarching reality for all of us. In fact, this is the command submit to God in verse 7. It's the first of 10 commands in the text. There are ten imperatives here, and all of them give us an urgent call to repentance to correct our desire for the world. These are really, like some have said, military commands, just one right after the other. And it doesn't even give us time much to think about it that you just need to do this, do this, do this, do this. We are to submit, resist, draw near cleanse purify lament mourn weep turn your laughter to sorrow and humble yourselves that's what he's calling on us to do the word translated here submit is the original verb hupotasso it's a common word in the new testament in fact it's used of the submission of jesus to his own parents it's used of paul's talk about how you and i are to submit to the government it talks about how the um, wife is to submit to the husband, and I'll add to that that also the husband is to submit to the wife by loving her as Christ loves the church. And then also um, how a slave submits to his master. The word hupa tasso is made up of two words hupo and tasso, but it basically means this to line up and take your orders. It talk, it's, it's talking about military rank, if you will. There's someone in authority over you. And you are required to listen up and to take your orders and to obey them. There's no option given here. No uh, possibility of you having insubordination. You are to submit. And this is something that is hard for a person who's a friend of the world to submit to the things of God because they are already in a proud, self-reliant, self-centered state. And they are more affectionate toward the world than they are the things of God. And you can always note them. You can always mark them. You can always notice them because they will find more affection for the things of the world than they will for obeying the basic commands of God's word. The basic commands. So it's a commandment. And some would say, well, okay, I get it. I understand that we are to submit. But why? Why should we have to submit to everything that God says? Well, simply put, because he's God and you're not. He is God. He's the creator. He's the Lord. He's the king. He's the lawgiver. He's the judge. He's the savior. He is literally everything. And For you and I not to submit is to submit to the very one who owns us, who gives us breath, who sustains us, who forgives us, and will one day judge us. So we should submit because he's God. There's an example of... um, How Paul sees this and I'll just show it to you if you can turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. This is one of the most profound declarations of theology proper in all of the Bible because what you have here is Paul's own uh, very clear statement of the character of God given to a pagan community. This is a group of pagans philosophers in Athens, Greece. They were known for their philosophy, their debating of philosophy they were known for their worship of multiple gods, many gods. And in fact, they had one idol there to the unknown god. Some believe that the reason why that was there is because they had so many gods that they worshiped. They had one there for the one that they may have missed. Well, what Paul does, he takes that as an opportunity. He says, I'm going to tell you about the one that you missed, which is the obvious one, which is the only one. Right. Look at Acts seventeen twenty four. Acts seventeen twenty four. So what does Paul say to a group of godless people who don't know anything about God or Christ? How does he declare God? Does he simply say, listen, I want you to know something. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. If you'll just follow him and accept him as your savior and Lord, you will have a wonderful life here. No, this is what Paul says. He says, let me tell you about the God that you missed. This God, verse 24, is the one who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men who dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of our own poets, your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature as gold and silver or stone something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly these things of ignorance or these times of ignorance, God has overlooked and now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. In that one text, Paul says that God is creator. He is sovereign. He is transcendent. He is self-sufficient. He is sustainer. He is provider, he is ordainer, he is omnipresent, he is omniscient, he is omnipotent, he is the savior, and he's the judge. And there's more. So when he defines God, he defines him as the all-knowing creator and sovereign one of the universe to whom you have everything to do and everything to give credit to to exist. And you will one day judge. That's why you submit. Later on in another letter he wrote in Romans 14, verse 11, he says... Quoting what God says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow before me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Why should you submit to God? Because God is our judge. Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse seven says this, and do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespassed against the Lord God and their of their father's So that he gave them up to desolation as you see. Now do not be stiff-necked. That's the opposite of submission by the way. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. But yield yourselves to the Lord. And enter into his sanctuary. Which he has sanctified forever. And serve the Lord your God. That the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. I could read a hundred verses here today. That would show you the reason why you should submit to God. Submission to God is a basic, fundamental, foundational element of Christianity. Being a Christian, listen to this, being a Christian starts with submission. It starts with submission. Did you know that? I mean, in fact, now today we have a wimpy gospel being preached most of the time. Our gospel is, you know, look, Jesus died for you and he's already, uh, Forgiven you of all of your sins on the cross. You just need to come and follow him. Would you please accept him? He's up in heaven hoping you will come. He has no clue that you will. For sure. But he's hoping you will. Will you accept him today? In other words, ultimately the decision resides in us and us alone. And God has to just wait around and hope that it happens. Well, that's not the way the Bible presents the gospel invitation. In fact, the gospel invitation is complete opposite of the way we present it today most times. Because whenever the gospel is offered in the Bible, it's presented in a command, an imperative. We are commanded to come. We are commanded to believe, to repent, to submit, to forsake. We are commanded to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him. We are commanded to love the Lord our God with all of our heart soul mind and strength and if you reject the offer of the gospel and do not obey its command you will die you can you can submit and live or you can reject it and not submit and die i mean think of it like this when god called the people of israel out of egypt and brought them to mount sinai to give them the law he did not give them 10 suggestions he gave them 10 commandments to follow. A long later he gave them many more commandments and the point was as even it says in Deuteronomy that if you follow these laws and you obey these laws you will live but if you do not you will die. In other words at the very beginning God called out Israel to submit to the laws of God and the fact of that has not changed whenever it comes to Christianity you and I are called to submit to the Lord. Listen to this in Romans 10 9 a very popular verse that so many use today in their evangelistic efforts. When we're talking about what is required of someone to be saved, Romans 10, 9, and 10 often comes up. And Paul says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, just notice the words. He did not say that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Savior. He says you confess with your mouth The Lord Jesus. That basically means he's the sovereign one. He's the king. And you are to submit to him. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. It goes on in that same text and says. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord. Over all is rich to all who call upon him for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved required in this and very clearly taught in this context is submission. We are called to submit. We are not to have this easy believism that we have so often taught today that all you have to do is just accept Jesus into your heart. By the way, that is not in the Bible at all. There's not one verse that teaches it. There are plenty of verses I could go to that teach that God commands us to believe, commands us to receive, commands us to follow, but not just to accept the offer. So what he's telling us in this submission to God in this verse, in verse 7, is that you and I, by submitting to God, submitting to his word, submitting to his authority in our lives, and doing the basic commandment of loving the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength right you are going to repent of your unfaithfulness to God here's how you do it he begins to go on a little further now looking at the same verse he says now resist the devil we are to submit to God and flip side of the same coin resist the devil resist him the word resist here comes from a compound word auntie and histomy, the word auntie means against and the word histomy means to stand hence it means to literally stand against or to oppose it's used also in a military context to stand in opposition to so whatever the devil is and whatever he's about and whatever he teaches and whatever he pushes we are to stand against it we are to hold our ground there is no such thing as being a little bit part of the enemy. You are either all the way into the enemy's camp or you are not. Now, the word translated here, devil, in this text is the word Diablo. We're familiar with that. It simply means slanderer, and that is the devil's character. He is a slanderer. He is a deceiver. Uh, John 8 says he's a murderer and a liar. The book of Revelation says he's a destroyer. So he doesn't have any good adjectives to refer to him at all. There's nothing good about the devil and everything that he desires in your life is utter destruction. He doesn't desire anything good for you at all. He may present to you that what he's offering to you is very good, but I grant you the end of it is death and destruction. Kind of goes back to the same first original temptation in the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Whenever the devil came and tempted Eve and what was the primary argument he had? Has God really said? In other words, God's keeping some things from you. And if you were to actually follow what I'm telling you, you're going to be able to enjoy your life more. You're going to have more than what God is keeping from you. Children often think of that when it comes to their parents. They think because there's so many rules and so many commandments in their home that somehow the parents just want them to have a miserable life. But that's not it at all. What it is, is creating the fence before you fall off into the canyon. We're saying, don't go here because the world says, look, this is wonderful. This is great. You can have this. We say, no, don't do that. Because if you do, you're going to find out what comes on the other side of that fence, which is destruction, decay and death. But the devil makes it sound like it's so good. It's so great. And he slanders God in his word. He slanders the truth, misrepresents God's truth, and then leads people astray. He is the Diablo. He's the slanderer and the deceiver. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Then it says this in verse 27, nor give place to the devil. In other words, if you let anger go unrepented of, You don't deal with your sin, even in a larger context, quickly. You give place for the devil. You open the door, if you will. You crack it open just a little bit. You open the window just enough, and he can get in. Or it's another way of just leaving everything unlocked, which we don't ever do anymore, right, on our homes. Too often Christians do that today. They unlock everything and leave it all open for the devil to come in. In fact, sometimes, sadly, we invite him in. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and following says about the devil that we should be sober. We should be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And then even Peter says, resist him. Resist him steadfast in the faith. You are to stand firm against the devil. Listen, this is not something new to the Bible because the Bible has taught much about this enemy, an evil one ever since the creation of the world in fact Job had a ordeal with the devil personally in fact the devil personally came after him Peter also experienced the same thing whenever Peter had said on one occasion that he never would deny the Lord and that he would give his life for Christ and then at the time of the most stress of testing in his life he gave in through the power and temptation of the devil and even Jesus himself was assaulted by the devil personally. And then Paul the Apostle talks about the times whenever he was attacked by the devil. He called it a messenger of Satan, which was probably an orchestrated event to discredit his apostleship. He said he prayed for the Lord to remove it three times and God never did. It was a messenger of Satan. The churches in Revelation, Smyrna and Thyatira, were personally attacked by the devil himself. Now, the point is, is, I'm trying to make to you, and this is what I said to our church this morning. In the Reformed community, we have a tendency to downplay the existence of the devil and demons. We have a pendulum effect. We're kind of swinging one way or the other. The charismatics go all over here. They're binding the devil. They're casting out the devil. They're doing all kind of weird things to the devil. And then we say, well, we don't want anything to do with that. and We just do nothing about the devil, and we forget about him over here. And you and I need to understand the devil is real. He's a real created being. He was created as an angel, a very intelligent angel, a high ranking angel in heaven. He was filled with pride, thought he could be God. God said, no, kicked him out. And here he is. But along with him came other angels and those angels become what we know today as demons. They are also very real. And again, sometimes we kind of react to what we hear about demons and the devil we look at the Roman Catholic Church, and we hear about them exercising demons out of people. And uh, we say, wow, man, that's amazing. We don't want anything to do with that. But listen to this carefully. Listen, you have to understand the devil is a deceiver. And if he wants anybody to believe in a false religion, all he has to do is make it look like the demons are being cast out. And whenever it comes to the Reformed community and churches, evangelical churches, We need to be careful downplaying the work of the devil in our families and our church and our nation. He is very active. And the Bible makes it clear that he is. And that you and I should all be aware of the fact that it is only God who has the power to overthrow the devil completely. And ultimately, but you and I have the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to stand against him. To stand against him. And that's what he's calling on us to do. To resist. To stand up against him. You're never commanded in the Bible to go bind him. In fact, I think it was, uh, I forgot who it was who said this, but you know, think about the churches that on a given average Lord's day that pray and bind bind Satan. I mean, thousands of churches bind him every Sunday. You would think he would never get out as bound as it is. Apparently they must let him loose on Monday. They bind him on Sunday and then let him loose because he's running pretty free on Monday morning. And the point is, is that we don't have the authority to bind the devil. When I was first saved, I was in a Baptist church and I, I didn't have a clue. I had no discernment. I was new in the faith and the pastor would go around the walls of the church and he would plead the blood on the walls. And I was like, what in the world is this? And it was supposedly to bind the devil from having any kind of influence in the worship service. Well, of course, later on, I found out because I asked him, I said, where is that in the Bible? I can't find this where it says plead the blood. And it's not there. And a lot of the things that are done today by incantations and phrases and repetitions of phrases and the ability that some believe they can just take this supernatural, powerful being and say a few words. And all of a sudden, he's just like, oh, I can't do that anymore. You need to understand that the only thing the Bible tells you and I to do as believers against the devil is to stand against him. We don't pursue him. We don't go after him. We're not trying to find him. Listen, he'll find us soon enough. You stand up for the word of God and stand up for the truth of God and become effective for the kingdom. I grant you, he will find you. If not him personally, demons will come and find you. And you need to think about that. Not only in the context of this passage in James 4, that we are to resist the world and not become a friend of the world. Because once you do that, you have opened the door all the way for the devil to come in. All the way. I talked about it this morning, about that very thing, how important it is to make us aware that we should be on guard constantly against the wiles of the devil. So with that said, I would close with a passage, and if you'll turn there with me to Ephesians 6. I'll show you how I believe that Paul instructs us here on how we can stand against the devil, how we can resist the devil in the context of the influence of the world. And at the end of Ephesians in chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul concludes this wonderful letter to the church at Ephesus by telling us how you and I as believers can stand up against the attacks of the devil. Look at verse 10. This is Ephesians 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's where it starts. You don't come against the devil in your own strength. You don't come against the devil with your own philosophy and wisdom. You don't come against the devil with some other incantation you've learned from some charismatic brother. You stand in the Lord, strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So how do you do that? I mean, that's a tough one to kind of nail down, right? How exactly do you do that? Well, I believe verse 11 and following tells us how we do it. He says, put on the whole armor of God. Now, notice what he did not say. He did not say, put on some of the armor. If you don't put all of it on, you leave yourself exposed. There will be an area where the devil can attack. You are to put on the whole armor of God. If you don't have all of it, you are ill-equipped to handle the assault of the evil one against you as a believer. But he does tell us as we do that, commanding us to do so, we are to put on the whole armor of God. Here it is that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes or devices of the devil. For he reminds us in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That is people. That's not our war or institutions made by people. Our wrestling, our warfare is against the devil himself. He goes on and says they are against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And many believe that just refers to different rankings of demons and evil forces uh, associated with the devil. And verse 13 says, therefore, since we war against these spiritual wicked hosts, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. There it is a second time that you may be able to stand or withstand in the evil day. And having done all, what does he say? Stand. And then verse 14, stand. I don't know about you, but I caught it. There's an emphasis here. Four times he says, stand. He didn't say run. He didn't say pursue him. Go find him. Stand. Stand firm, fully armored and prepared with the whole armor. What's the armor? Well, verse 14 and following tells us what it is. It's really simple for you and I as believers. If we'll practice it, the first thing is given in verse 14. We're to have our waist girded with truth. Now he's picking up on the imagery of a Roman soldier, which would have been very common imagery of that day. And what he's talking about here is a belt that would often hold up the loose clothing on a Roman soldier that would be needed to be taken out of the way when they were engaging in battle. Otherwise, it's hard to, a good illustration would be this, it's hard to fight with a bathrobe on. All right, you need some movement. And so you would take those loose loose items and you would tuck them up under your belt so they wouldn't be in the way. And here in verse 14, he's saying we are to have our waist girded with truth, not a literal belt, but truth, which refers to more truthfulness or integrity would be a better way of saying that later on. He talks about the actual truth of God's word when he refers to the sword of the spirit here, he's talking about not just truth in general, but living a life of integrity, honesty and truthfulness. Let me explain what I mean. In other words, you're the same person you are here that you are at home. And you are the same person that you are here that you are in your private time. If you are a man or a woman who has a second life, a secret life, a secret sin, you're not a man or woman of integrity. You are not one who has their belt of integrity truthfulness and so you have a vulnerability to the devil because you are playing the role of a hypocrite and you have opened yourself up to something that will allow you to be attacked and to cause you to fall as a believer listen one of the things we know today that happens many times in the context of the Christian community is one of the most vulnerable areas among men especially now women is pornography It is literally rampant in the church as much as it is outside the church. A lot of the reasons has happened because of the media and the smartphones and the computers and the technology. But there's many men, many young men, many sons, and sadly even many daughters nowadays who are struggling with this in a secret life. And if you're going to be a man or woman of integrity, you need to repent of that sin, cut off the sources whereby you're accessing that. Make sure you don't have access to it and not do that at all. Like what one author said, one biblical counselor said, one of the ways to stop sin is to do this. Stop it. Stop it. Give an example to you. If you have a problem with lust, one of the best things not to do is to go to the beach. Okay, that's pretty simple. So, well, I'm going to go and I'm just not going to look. You're crazy. And you're not being honest with yourself. And you need to be aware of that. And especially parents. Parents need to be aware of this. If you have something playing in your house, a TV, listen, it used to be many years ago. Now it's many years ago, you could trust what most things were on television. You can't trust anything on a TV now. And the commercials can be as bad or worse. And so you're sitting there and you're thinking everything's fine and you've got your hand on the remote, and you believe, you know what, I'm going to time this just right, and I'm going to cut it out when it comes, and you're not going to be able to do it. And before long, your child sitting there is going to be exposed to some of the worst forms of evil in this world, and you think that that's going to be okay, and it's going to seduce them into going into deeper and darker sin. So my point is is that if you and I are struggling with something, we need to deal with that before the Lord, and stop it now before it destroys your life before it destroys your life there are some who even struggle with alcohol because they'll have alcohol hidden throughout the house behind uh, cabinets and doors and plants and things and they'll sip a little drink here and a little drink there because they are dependent upon that or it may be drugs or whatever it may be could be a hundred different things but the point is if you're living a secret life then you've got your belt loosed, folks tighten it up The next one is given here in the text. He says we are also to have the breastplate of righteousness. This is so important because the breastplate covered the vital organs in the chest and sometimes even as far down as the stomach area. And that would cover the heart, the lungs, the bowels, the areas that if you were to be attacked in by the devil could cause fatality. And of course the heart represented the mind in the Old and New Testament and the the bowels represented the emotions. And so... We are protecting our heart, our mind, our thinking, and our emotions, the responses to the things that we have by righteousness. That's right living, obedient living. By obedient living to the word of God. Then the third one given to us in verse 15, we are to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This gospel of peace is not talking about the peace that passes understanding. This is talking about positional peace. The good news about peace. In other words, you are now at peace with God. Whenever the devil comes against you and accuses you that you're not right with God, you're not forgiven. You say, hold on a minute, devil. Listen to me carefully here. I have been forgiven of all of my sins. I have the gospel of Jesus Christ that has made me right by his righteousness and I have peace with God. I'm not at war with God. You stand firm in that. Verse 16 says, above all, you take the shield of faith with which you're able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. The Roman soldier had two shields. One was a large shield that he could squat down and hide behind whenever the arrows were coming. The other one was a small, usually circular, and it would be used for a close combat, one-on-one combat, to deflect the attacks of the other soldier face-to-face. Here he's talking about the large one that you actually can get behind and as the arrows that are dipped in pitch and set on fire are coming across, you can actually quench them with the faith of the shield. What faith is he talking about? Well, faith in God. What does he mean by that? Trusting God, trusting his word. When God says this is the best way to go you go the way he says when God says stop that it's going to harm you it's going to destroy you you believe God you trust God whenever the devil's telling you no it would be better if you enjoyed this God says no you said no I'm going to trust God you hide behind the faith and the trust of God as the fiery darts come at you one after another and then he says in verse 17 you are to take the helmet of salvation this is probably better understood as the helmet of the hope of salvation as amplified in first uh, Thessalonians chapter 5 when Paul alludes to this very thing the helmet all obviously uh, protects the mind the head the thinking and here in this context one of the greatest things we have is this we have hope we have hope of a future resurrection we have hope of a future deliverance we're not going to be in the war forever we're not going to have the battle all the time forever we're going to be delivered in the future then he says as he moves from defensive weapons to offensive weapons, we are to take the sword of the spirit. And many say that there's only one offensive weapon here. I differ with that. There are three. And the first is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This, by the way, is one of the two swords the Roman soldier would carry. One of the, so- one of the swords was a very long sword. Could be three, could be four foot long. And usually whenever you swung that sword around, the heads went rolling. But the other sword was a small, we would think like a dagger, usually 16 to 18 18 inches long. It was used for close uh, combat with a soldier. And it was very deadly. And here in this context, he uses that of the small sword. And then he says that sword is the word of God, not the Lagos, but the rhema. The rhema is a specific statement of God, a specific word of God. In other words, let me give you an illustration. If you're in a battle for your life in temptation, one of the worst things you can do is quote the genealogies. That's not going to help you, okay? You need to go a little bit more specific. You're dealing with gambling problems. You need to go to the passages that deal with coveting and greed and all of those things. You're dealing with materialism or anger. You go to the verses that deal with those specifically. You have a great example of that in the temptation of Christ he quoted specific verses dealing with the specific temptations of the devil so we use the word of god which is the sword of the spirit that's the first weapon the second weapon is found in verse 18 praying always this is missed you need to be in a constant attitude of prayer always in prayer that doesn't mean you're so heavenly minded you're no earthly good either what that means is you're constantly in mind of what god is doing and you're interacting with him on a daily basis all the way through the day just like you would with a spouse i mean you don't come home and sit there and say nothing you talk right and if you don't you need some counseling right The point is, is that you spend time in communication. You love the Lord. You talk to him about everything. And you pray always about God to give you power and protection, as even Jesus taught us to pray to deliver us from the evil one. And then also he says that we are to be watchful, verse 18. So there's your three offensive weapons, the sword of the spirit, praying always with all prayer and supplication and being watchful, be alert. Listen, I want to tell you something very important. There's no such thing as sleep time in this battle. You can't rest. You can't sit down. Oh, I'm just going to take a few days off. No, nothing like this at all. The devil doesn't stop. The demons don't stop. The world doesn't stop. It keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. And you and I are to be always alert, always watchful for the attacks of the evil one. So with that said, if you and I do all of that and we apply those things to our life, listen to what James four says in verse seven, if we are to resist the devil, then, and that's a command, by the way, he will flee from you. You say, what's the way to handle the devil? Are we to bind him, cast him out, say a few words over, over him? Hope you'll leave. No, you resist him. You stand firm. You stand firm with the armor. You stand firm with the word of God, with prayer and watchfulness. And then he will flee from you. Why will he flee? Because he knows he has no way to affect you. If he sees, listen to this. If he sees the window cracked, if he sees the door is ajar, he's coming in. You lock everything up, everything up so that you can honor the Lord with your life. Amen? Well, we want to turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper as we think about those things that honor the Lord. And this is one of those because it is the ordinance the Lord has given to us to remember his death, to celebrate his atonement that he's done for us. By giving us the bread and the juice, we have representations of his body and also his blood here today. I would like to read a passage from Hebrews in chapter 9. Just a short section here. The Word of God says in verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 9, Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves were better than the sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into the heavens itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He says, and as it is appointed unto men once to die. And after that, the judgment. So Christ was offered once To bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time. Apart from sin. For salvation. That's beautiful words. The once. Given sacrifice of our Lord. He never goes in. Yearly as the priest would do. And offer sacrifices. Not only for the people. But for himself. Jesus died once. And for all, for the sins of many to forgive us so that we could be made right with God. And we celebrate this today because this is what God has commanded us to do. So we submit to what our Lord tells us to do. We do it to honor Him. We don't do it as a burden, we do it because we love Him. And we're thankful to do this. One of the things the Bible also says about the Lord's Supper is that it's an important event for the church. And I mean the true church of Christ, the ones who are believers. If you're not a Christian here today, then you need to make sure that you do not take the Lord's Supper. It is for those who have believed in Christ and been baptized. And especially parents, you all know this, you hear this every month here at this church. Be aware of your children's position with the Lord, where they are in their walk, and where, they're, where they are in their faith. And instruct them appropriately when it comes to the taking of the Lord's Supper. But as a believer here today, we talked about some difficult things And I think it's important for us to realize that if there's something in your life you haven't dealt with, make sure you deal with it before you take it to the Lord and take the Lord's Supper. Make sure you repent of that sin that's in your life that you have not dealt with. Don't leave the door cracked for the devil. Make sure you pray and confess it and repent of it. Let's pray together as we take a moment. Father, we do thank you that we have this time together today. What a beautiful time of worship together. As we gather as your body here in this place here in Rock Hill, South Carolina. We give you praise, Lord, for the words that we've heard in your scripture. We praise you, Lord, for the songs that we've sung. And Lord, even now as we come to this time of the Lord's table that you've given to us. Which is the new covenant in your blood. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us to remind us of the sacrifice that you gave for us, the once for all, complete, all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. We thank you for the body that was given to the Son to live a perfect life on this planet in full obedience to the law, in complete righteousness. We thank you, Lord, for his willingness to suffer and to die and to receive upon himself the full wrath of God that was due to us. I pray, Father, today that as we gather in your presence that you would purge our hearts from any sin, cleanse us, Lord, from any evil and unrighteousness. If there's any evil way within us, Lord, that we don't even notice, please expose it in our hearts by your Holy Spirit's power. Enable us, Lord God, by the power of your Spirit to confess these sins to you, to agree with you what they are, to call them what they are, and to repent and turn from them and to follow you in obedience. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for the Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen.